It sounds tiny, like minuscule little frog, like a microhylid. It is small. Or a it is small. Weird little it is spring small. peeper-like creature. It almost to me sounds like you know when you like pull a balloon, a, a balloon, and like spread the edge. Yes, and it, it does have. Like, it's got a, Yes, it's got a. Yeah. But you're right, it is small. It's really small. It's a very weirdly artificial-sounding frog. In the sense that it doesn't... It almost doesn't sound organic, like not coming from a creature. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm completely blind. Do I get a clue? Yeah, I'll give you a clue. It's named after something you use to measure time over short periods. <laughs> um... No, metronome's pacing. This is a stopwatch, but stopwatch frog. What? <laughs> ah, the old stopwatch frog. The old stopwatch frog. I'll give you another clue. It's oh, a small, it's a minute. It's a toad. Minute. Small second frog. Nanosecond no. frog. No, a time measuring device, you know, like uh, not time itself. That would. Okay. You're not going to get it. No. Maybe you will. One more guess. Uh, uh, Have you. Egg, egg timer frog. The minisc- <laughs> miniature egg timer frog. <laughs> pretty close, mate. It's pretty close. It's actually called the hourglass toad. God damn it. That's what I was thinking in my head and I forgot the name and they called it an egg timer. And you clearly panics. You panics. called you, an you know, hourglass. It's an intense situation to be in. So oh, um, words failed me once again. So yeah, it's called the hourglass toad. Leptophryne borbonica. Bobonica. They're tiny, man. You were right. You're right about them being small. 25 to 40 millimeters SVL. So that's Minuscule. like two, to f- two and a half to four centimeters. Females bigger than the males. I don't know that there's that much that we know that's like crazily interesting. The tadpoles are jet black. They're found in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand. And they like bourbons. What? Bourbonica. That's what you said, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, they like their bourbonica. What does that mean, bourbonica? Uh, biscuit fagus, right? Get out of here with your biscuit. <laughs> I don't even like... Do you know, this will probably upset you, but I don't actually even like bourbons. I quite like bourbons. I know you do. I've seen you chowing down on them countless times. Yeah. I don't um, think a frog of, of 25 milliliter SVR would be capable of consuming a bourbon. So I can't imagine it's a viable strategy for them. So apparently bourbonico means of the bourbons. <laughs> there you go. But it can also mean backward or out of date. Yeah, the feminine version is bourbonica. So it means... Of the Bourbons. What are the Bourbons, though? Is Bourbons that... like a region in France? Slash... Oh. But this is from Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Yeah, but wait, come on, it's probably named after somebody or something, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Very interesting case. Yeah. Bourbon. But it could also mean... Um, Looks like a Bourbon. Biscuit. <laughs> backward or out of date? Out of date frog. Very strange. Out of date toad. The reason they call it the hourglass toad is because it's got a black hourglass just on its back. Like, no joke, it's just, it looks like an hourglass. It's like a black cross, but filled in. So oh. it's got a very distinct hourglass shape on the back. Huh. Yeah. Some of them have like another triangle behind the eyes. It's sort of grey brown. Well, maybe that's yeah. the Bourbonicus connection then, because you've got sort of like time and date and something along those lines. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. Apparently, though, it is um, toxic. If you were to lick it, it has an unpleasant burning taste. So nothing like a bourbon? No. Well, I don't know. I find the taste unpleasant. But 
not burning, but they gave it to a mouse in 2004 to see what would happen. And at 100 milligrams, the skin extracts produced difficulties locomoting, prostration, which is where they kind of like spread out in a weird way. Yeah, starfish on the floor. Yeah, but recovery after two hours. It's probably toxic to mammals, essentially, which probably is an anti-predator. Unpleasant, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to be finding it very easy to eat, kill and eat something if you're prostrated on the floor and suffering from locomotor difficulties. I don't yeah, know how, how realistic of a dose 100 milligrams is. That's like a tenth of a gram, isn't it? Well, if they're only 2.5 milliliters, millimeters long, can't imagine that so, they're chock full of toxin. It might be the case the predator has to eat one to land the, land Maybe. the issue then. Mm. But that'll be the first and last. So, yeah. That is Leptophryne Borbonica, the hourglass toad. This is the Herpetological Highlights podcast with me, Tom Major, and Ben Marshall. And uh, yeah, we're still one for one on the old frog guessing, Ben. Yeah, well, to be fair, like your clues got me so close. It's just a, I can't remember the name of a egg timer hourglass thing. I could have I've drawn just... you an illustration of it and I would have been fine. Yeah, I was going to ask if you'd played that game, which I now can't remember the name of. So Boggle. Really very good. No, no, you know the one where you've got to like <laughs> guess <laughs> boggle. You've got to guess where people have like got a word. It's like an action or like a and you got to charades, charades. No, I play it all the time. Ah, oh, so wow, classic. Anyway, so we just don't can't remember any words this episode. That's it. <laughs> it doesn't bode well. That's the way we're going to go forwards. Oh God. Anyway, let's move on. So we're moving on from frogs. We're moving into snakes. Yeah, yeah. This is a paper by Zdenek Staples Bork Canduso, 2023. Soundgarden, how snakes respond to airborne and groundborne sounds, published in PLOS One. And this paper received a lot of media attention. It really did capture the imagination of a broader audience, hmm. which is nice to see. That's unusual for something that's so, like... I feel like it's kind of niche. <laughs> they, don't they don't have, have visible ears, do they? There's no hole. How can the sound get in? Imagine if they did just have full-on ears, like mouse ears. <laughs> Be yeah, well, having, you know, once you've gone to the trouble of evolving leglessness as like this advanced evolutionary state, if you keep the appendages that are giant ears, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's going to kind of reduce your streamlined nature, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just going to be getting bunged up with stuff nonstop. <laughs> So yeah, although they don't have external ear openings, snakes are not deaf. They receive vibrations through bones attached to the jawbone. One is the one that the jawbone attaches to. The other one's like the bit that in us forms like the sort of nostrils. It's the top of the nostrils. So the vibrations come through those and they can hear it. They have like sort of, although they don't have an eardrum, they do have like fluid in there and they do have some other structures which they transport sound through. Although it probably isn't their best sense, they can hear. They seem to be better from previous studies at detecting notes at like lower frequencies. So like what we would perceive to be sort of more like bassy tones. Mm. Stuff more akin to like vibration in the ground as opposed to higher pitched stuff through the air, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, yeah, so they wanted to see basically... This study, they make the point that other studies where they've investigated snake hearing, they've not actually like allowed the snakes to free roam. They're sort of 
in a small box or they're suspended in like a basket so that kind of limits how the snakes can react to sound the basket one sounds nuts but the idea is that it's not touching any surface that would be transmitting vibration so you're just testing airborne sounds as opposed to vibrations through the like base of the snake yeah that's the idea (laughs) it's not just they happen to put them in a basket (laughs) yeah no 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 good context so in this study, it took place in Australia. So um, naturally, there's loads of venomous species. You've got, well, the only one that's not venomous is the Woma python, which is obviously a python. And then you've got lots of different venomous species that they tested. So they had some death adders, acanthophis, some arboreal lapids, which were the pale-headed snakes, Hoplocephalus bitoquatus. And they had two active lapids, coastal taipans and brown snakes. Yeah, they just tested all these animals, all of these snakes, to see how they reacted to sound. And they did this by playing them a variety of what's called pink sounds. How would you describe a pink sound? Pink sound is different to white noise. Like pink noise and white noise are different things. And different again from brown noise. Yes, but there's these three categories of like noise that are generated in different ways. Now, the actual technical difference between them, I don't know. White noise is more akin to, like, static that you'd get from, like, an electrical device. Pink noise mm. is very similar, but it's somewhat more pleasant. <laughs> I put you on the spot there, and that wasn't very fair. Should we just hear the sounds? Well, we don't have a comparison between, like, pink and anything else. We just have no, pink. No, we just have purely pink. Yeah. But people know what white noise is, like... Well, that's the thing. And the thing is, it doesn't sound that much different from white noise. It is just a sort of gentler white noise. And I'm sure there's some technical difference between them, but I'm not aware of it. Mm. Okay, well, let's play that. Let's play the first sort of like lowest frequency pink noise that the snakes were exposed to. So it kind of sounds like sort of like a sort of wind. It's a wind sound, but it's very bassy. It's very deep. Yeah, it's more like a rumble. Yeah. I feel like it's more like a rumble that you... It's, um... So this is an important distinction between the next two that you're going to hear, is that this one is sufficiently bassy to produce vibrations. Yeah, that one I wouldn't be surprised if some people actually can't pick up. Like, I tried to play that sound on my laptop, and I couldn't hear it. So I think you have to have like a bassy setup to actually even distinguish that. Well, and we've got to assume that whatever compressions applied to the audio file going out is also not hiding it or anything along those lines. <laughs> so it's be quite funny. If you're not hearing it, that's fine. But yeah, it's like a low rumble. It's a low rumble, like a truck going by or something along those lines. Don't immediately assume that your hearing's impaired if you couldn't hear that. No. It's probably the, the important message. We want people. They are low frequency sounds. What are we talking? That one's sub 150 hertz or is 150 yeah. hertz ish? Yeah. Is even that? I thought it was like 40. No, yeah, zero to one, 150 hertz is the first okay. one. Yeah. Okay, let's hear the second one. So it's quite broadly similar. Probably don't need to listen to that for that long. Slightly, slightly higher. And then you've got the third one. There we go. So these are the sounds that they are testing to see if the snakes yeah. can hear. Different hertz rates. So we got 0 to 150 for the first one, 150 to 300 for the second one, and 300 to 450 for the third one, that higher pitched one. The second and the third one are higher pitched enough to be not producing vibrations, so that's all about the sounds being transmitted to the snake. 
through the air rather than through the ground. Mm-hmm. And they were looking to see how the snakes reacted. So they categorized a bunch of behaviors as defensive and cautious. So if the snake froze, if the snake hissed, if the snake demonstrated fixation, does that mean like looking at the source of the sound? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, head jerks, lower jaw drops, periscoping, which is where the snakes do that really cute thing where they like lift up and then they have their like a little periscope. They have their head like yes. extended up <laughs> on a bit of neck. And also cautionary exploration. Basically, the trials in all of the different snakes came pretty close to a 100% tongue flick response, which suggests they can hear the sounds. When they were played the sounds, they were tongue flicking as a sort of response. Yes, um, this which is obviously curiousness. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah. Snake's base level of interest is a tongue flick. Like, unless the snakes, you know, sometimes they stop tongue flicking if they're really ticked off or super scared. But like, if they're slightly interested in anything, their first response is usually to have a little tongue flick. The only one that didn't do that almost 100% of the time was the death adders. Not sure why that is. Yeah, we'll talk about death adder behavior a little bit later on, maybe, because they are kind of different to all the others. In they the are the predators. Yeah. Yeah. But what they also found was that the variations in the different behaviors that the snakes exhibited were kind of um, predictable based on the genus they were in. So like snakes, yep. which were closely related, kind of um, did similar things. And uh, that suggests that the sort of behavioral responses that they were seeing were a combination of like, well, not only environmental components, but also heritable. But sorry, I've made that very confusing. What I should have said, what they found was that there was a similar proportion of the variation explained by which genus the snakes were in and also like within genus. So what that means is that like there's a lot of variation in how the snakes react. A lot of it can be explained by which snakes they're related to, but then also there is variation within individuals of the same species or genus. Right. And that means that there's kind of this dual impact. They're not just inheriting how they react to sounds. They're also learning how to react to sounds based on their lives or there's like variation in the individual groups. Yeah. So what you're essentially getting at is that we have individual variation, but individuals are more similar behaviorally to individuals within the same genus. So you've got these like groupings of all the different genus. They're more similar in behaviors, but there is still this individuality. And the whole point is that because the genera or genus are grouped, or the individuals within them are quite similar, it looks like it's hereditary, not learnt. If it was learnt, you'd expect all the diversity of all these different individuals, different upbringings to be bigger differences than what you see between genus or genera. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the different species here. So we've got taipans, you know, taipans, this like active foraging, exceptionally venomous predatory snake. Well, they're all predatory, aren't they? But uh, (laughs) this one, actually, the taipans, they exhibited all behaviors except for periscoping. Periscoping being where they kind of like raise their head up off the ground and look around. It's really cute. It's like probably the cutest thing that snakes do. It's up there. It's up there. There's lots of photos of like royal pythons doing it. Um, Yeah. I don't think I've ever ever seen a snake actually do it, but I've not had much to do with royal pythons. I think they're like quite willing to do it. Then there's death adders. So death adders, their main response was freezing. If they heard a noise, scary, stay still, which 
isn't that surprising because they have low activity levels anyway. They're big fat blobs. They sit on the ground. They just ambush forage. You They're just waiting for stuff to come along. You can't imagine one getting away quickly, can you? Not really. I think the only thing quickly they're going to do is be capable of striking. Strike. Yeah. yeah. Strike hard. Strike fast. And they've don't... got that like classic Crypsis as well. Chubby Viper Crypsis. Yeah. So... And they may even have chemical camouflage. Yeah. They smell invisible. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got Death Adders doing that. Pale-headed snakes, those hoplocephalus, their main response to sound was cautious exploration they didn't really do anything else so that's kind of interesting oh one other thing they said about the um death adders when there was so those first two sounds we heard when they heard those which um the authors think they might be able to hear through the ground as vibrations they actually tried to kind of like move away from those and they think that's because they feel like vibrations so they might think something's coming they got to get out of the way of for the rest of the time they were just freezing and brown snakes, so we covered the paper about brown snakes. Brown snakes, you know, these large venomous lapids, and they have quite a show. If you upset them enough, they'll like rear up like a cobra. And they give you adequate warning, I think is yes. the way we probably phrased it, right? They're not going yes. to hide their intention. The warning is meant to be read either. as a warning. Yeah, they don't want to bite, but they will if they absolutely have right. to. They have this reputation for being irritable, which isn't really fair. I don't think snakes have the capacity of irritability necessarily. But Although um, they might, they might. That's a personality thing. That'd be very hard to test for. It's just... Yeah, I mean, I just don't think irritability has a role in not, like mostly... I, I think irritability just plays into our like social nature. Like, I just, I think you have to have quite complex sociality before irritability comes into it, no? I don't agree. I think you could interpret irritability as like an animal's so context of like animal being bugged by small flying insect or something. Animal that's yeah. quite chill might not respond to flying insect around face whatsoever. Irritable animal might respond by trying to get rid of flying insect near face in a sort of quicker and more ferocious way than your chill animal. And I would feel comfortable calling that irritability in a sort of all right more fun it's a compelling kind of way. argument it's a compelling argument yeah no okay i'll change my view i'll change my view they can be <laughs> irritable we have got what else oh yeah we're talking about brown snakes so brown snakes they exhibit this kind of like one or the other response to sound they'll either remain still or they'll run away so that kind of plays into what they were doing in their defensive mechanisms that either defend and get all crazy or they would just run away so very similar yes it's and nice having stuff like that that tallies up with previous studies like it feel it's all matching up you're seeing these sort of behavioral commonalities in different uh, groups of snake yeah it is nice let's talk about woma pythons my favorite of the snakes that were included in this study they're pretty um, damn good they're so cool with their little eyebrows and their orange heads and their big chunky stripy bodies. Yeah, really nice python. They tended to try and get away from the first sound that we heard, which was that sort of like <laughs> windy. Low rumble. The one that Low actually rumble. produced vibrations. Yes. Whereas they'd actually moved towards the sound in treatment S3, which was the kind of like higher... No, that one. So what's that? They say that might be because it sounds... Well, they don't go so far as to say it might be because it sounds like an animal, but they say that 
they're less likely to try and run away from the other sounds than the other snakes because, first of all, they're active nocturnally. So they're active at night, which means they've got less noisy predators to worry about. But also they eat some of the noisy predators. So like they'll eat monitor lizards. They'll eat rat. They won't eat raptors, but they'll eat monitor lizards. I reckon they'd eat a raptor if they could get one. Yeah, they probably could. Yeah. They'll probably eat cats as well. Whereas all the other species are kind of scared of these diurnal predators. Right. And so they're kind of... Womers, basically, they're just beefier. They're more nocturnal. They say they're probably just a bit more confident as a result of their size. But then the sort of hesitancy over a very low rumbly sound would make sense because a low rumbly sound is going to be a very large creature or movement, which is not going to be great regardless of how big a snake you are, really. Hmm. Yeah. What kind of animal in Australia could actually make a large rumbling noise? Because it's not like they're going to have, I guess, cows cows it's going to be cows isn't it yeah well we're sort of suggesting that this is a hereditary sort of trait so is it something that's sort of developed more recently if it's cows i don't know how long cows have been in australia but other like large but a kangaroo jumping along you wouldn't want to be a snake and a kangaroo jumped on your head would you and they they can get pretty beefy pretty heavy yeah because i was thinking like there's not an abundance of megafauna in australia but then again it's a lot of it is only recently extinct so you know, you got big rat eye, you want to get stepped on by that? True that. Yeah, big emu on your thing. head? No way. Yeah. But either way, yeah, Wormers seem pretty confident, which is nice to see. And uh, yeah, you know, they make the point that all of this, all of this stuff, they've unequivocally proven that snakes can hear. Um, so if anyone ever tells you snakes can't hear, you can be a smart aleck and tell them, yes, they do. And um, yeah, they can hear things certainly in the range of zero to 450 hertz. And that, you know, there's these different behavioral responses depending on which genus they're in. So, yeah, snakes are inheriting these these yeah. responses to sound. Which sort of might be connected to that. What they used a lovely term in this paper that was now, as soon as I bring it up, is immediately leaving my mind. Like pace of life. Is that what they called it? Pace of life? Pace of life. Which yeah. is this sort of all encompassing term. So you have your like ambush, slow, sort of less mobile snakes like your deaf adder and then you've got your much live fast die young brown snakes active predatory uh elapids and i feel like pythons are probably somewhere in the middle they're quite big so they're not going to be moving as fast but they are still active non-ambush predators also nocturnal and you've got these sort of different speeds of life and i quite like that that idea and it certainly seems like there is some sort of connection between that and potentially the noises that they're sensitive to and the behaviors in reaction to those noises there does seem to be something yeah going you have to on play there. to your strengths yeah play to your strengths exactly if you're a death adder and something big's coming you're only going to want to move if you absolutely have to because right. worst case scenario you, you move to get out of the way and then you reveal yourself to something which is going to yeah. smash you to pieces because you're not going to outpace them no certainly not certainly not where something like your brown snake could outpace stuff yeah yeah do you know what's funny? I saw on Twitter, actually, the lead author of this study, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, who was the lead author? Uh, Dr. Christina Zdenek. I think it was her on um, on Twitter saying that this paper like got rejected a couple of times for not having broad enough appeal and then like has gone on to have like three points. I don't understand. What are you saying? Are you saying... Editors and peer reviewers might be slightly out of touch with what the public would like to know about all these cool animals <laughs> and that things about snakes and single sort of group specific studies actually have much broader appeal than something about monkeys. Yeah, maybe. I hate broad broad appeal, such a absolute 
trash reason to reject a paper, in my opinion. Like I wholeheartedly agree. What's, science yeah. is meant to be broadly appealing, is it? That's its goal. It's to be broadly appealing. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. I thought that might I thought that might rile you up. Yeah, no. But this is broadly appealing to people who want to learn about snake hearing. It's awesome. This is a great paper. Yeah, it's really I, intriguing. I mean, mate, broad I appeal. wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, I wholeheartedly Pah. agree. Yeah. yeah. Broad appeal is not... Broad appeal. Not that just means watered down, right? Well, yeah. I think, you know, in the big, big journals, there's a tendency towards things which are to do with, like, whales or turtles or Neanderthals or... Yeah, which is just... Other bipedal hominins. Rebuild as a sort of... Yeah, no, it's just, nah, nah. I'm not surprised, but I'm also massively not impressed. <laughs> Whereas I am <laughs> impressed with it. the paper, and it's a cool paper, and it's been interesting to talk about. So yeah, totally. So that's it. Frog, frogs, snakes can hear. Snakes can hear. Frogs can hear. They've got an external ear opening. We know that already. Yes, and we also heard the frogs. <laughs> yeah. Have you got any other business? Not really. I did want to say that there are videos of the snakes reacting to stuff. They have a nice YouTube video that will throw in the show notes of the different behaviours exhibited by the snakes in their sound arena. So if you want to see snakes reacting to sound, you can. <laughs> just That's an great. added bit of multimedia fun there. And I just have one piece of any other business. So in our last episode, we did a Species of the Bi-Week by um, Frederick Griesbaum that little frog, Amnirana Parva. And Frederick actually emailed us, completely unrelated note, to talk about glass frogs because he had listened to the episode where you mentioned that Aubrey had gone oh, on... yes, that they get yeah. crushed with raindrops. <laughs> yeah, that raindrops could crush them. And uh, whether or not that was actually true, yeah. are glass frogs as delicate as actual glass? And, um, well, it turns out, this is what Frederick had to say... He said, I'm just belatedly listening to the glass frog episode. Guess someone already answered, but in case not, they didn't. You're the first. Glass frogs are not delicate at all. Just came back from Ecuador and we handled plenty of them without problems. Of course, frogs of that size are delicate to an extent. Yes, but not so delicate that a single drop of water would tear will them. shatter them. No. Well, that's no. great news. So that that's is... great news for glass frogs. That's great news for my sort of state of being, because now I can not worry about glass frogs getting rained on. It does make sense. They're tougher than yeah. Than <laughs> it did than seem that. quite far fetched. <laughs> I'm glad that we got a herpetologist to actually confirm. Yes, for sure. That's a wonderful correction. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Clarification. So um, yeah, if that's everything, I think uh, if people want to get in touch with us, they can herphighlights at gmail dot com. We are on Patreon, of course. You can find the link in the show notes and. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on all those. If you want to have a look, find us. Similarly, you can follow me and Ben on Twitter. Yeah, all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening.